Welcome to The District, a podcast by The Spectator World about politics and culture. My name is Matt Purple, and I'm joined by my colleague Amber Athey. And we're also joined today by Tom Fitton. Tom is the president of Judicial Watch, and he's also author of the book, A Republic Under Assault. And we're here today on what is the anniversary, the one-year anniversary of the Capitol riot on January 6th of last year, uh, to discuss that Capitol riot and also to discuss a very particular angle of it, and that is those who have been arrested but not necessarily charged for the riot itself, uh, those who are being held uh, in jail, uh, those who have complained very loudly, the, these protesters and these rioters, of terrible conditions in the D.C. jail. That's where most of them are being held, uh, which has raised a very important question, and that is, are they political prisoners? Is there a political angle to all of this? Uh, so, Tom, I wanted to start out with you. I, I wanted to ask, you know, uh, conditions in this D.C. jail are notoriously dismal. Uh, we've been hearing a lot of complaints from those who were arrested on January 6th from inside uh, from inside the the jail, you know, about what they're being subjected to. Uh, can you walk us through some of this and tell us why this poses such a problem? Well, you know, going back to the beginning, I was thinking about this as I was preparing for your program, is that, you know, a lot of this is, a, it's a combination of politicized prosecuting and government incompetence. So after January 6th, you had this overreaction to it from the D.C. establishment and specifically the Justice Department. They're very nervous about the uh, inauguration. I don't blame them for that, given what happened on January 6th. So they shut the city down, which was an overreaction. But they made it clear that they wanted to send a signal uh, to uh, Americans who objected to the way the elections were handled uh, to stay away and not to protest anymore. And you had a key Justice Department official admit this on 60 Minutes, essentially saying we wanted to come down like a hammer and and really scare people off with dozens and dozens of arrests. So what happened is you had the Justice Department arrest hundreds of people, and they don't have the capacity or the competence to handle that many cases. That means you've got defendants that have evidence requirements in terms of evidence that needs to be turned over uh, to the defense as they as the prosecutions proceed. Uh, and they looked to me like they were making it up as they were, went along. And in order to, to cover up their incompetence, uh, uh, which resulted in people being in jail for periods of time that they otherwise would not be in the ordinary course, they started to manufacture this overheated rhetoric about what happened on January 6th. And unfortunately, uh, too many courts here in the District of Columbia have bought into it and have allowed people to sit in jail longer based on uh, really, you know, based on weak evidence than others similarly situated, meaning people caught up in and who had participated directly in rioting and attacks on federal officers and buildings and police uh, and there's a really uh, strong evidence of a disparate treatment between, for instance, rioters in Portland and uh, the January 6th defendants. Uh, Tom, you, you preempted me there because that was going to be my next question. And, and we'll go to Amber in a second for some of the specific instances of this that's that's been happening. But just from a bird's eye view, right, from somebody who has to think every day in terms of politics, my first reaction to this is, These guys are having the book thrown at them. But like you said, the rioters in Portland, uh, some of them were getting out the next day. 
most of them weren't being charged with crimes. A lot of them, it was just, it just became a kind of process. You go to jail for the night, then you get out, uh, then you're rioting once again, you know, wash, rinse, repeat, and there's never really any justice. And, and cities like Portland have suffered huge consequences as a result of that. And in a lot of cases, the riots have only continued. Uh, but it, it does set up what seems like a political double standard in the justice system, doesn't it? Yes. And some of the, at least one judge recently uh, highlighted this because one of the defendants raised this issue that there was disparate treatment between uh, what, um, how he's been treated and others have been treated with the, over one sixth uh, versus the Portland riots. And, you know, the judge essentially didn't buy it, but, um, you know, he did say there were serious concerns, and he wrote at the end of his decision, I happen to have the quote here, especially during moments of politically charged unrest, DOJ must strive for even-handed justice. Judd, who was the defendant in this case, raises tr- troubling questions about DOJ's adherence to this imperative in Portland. So this isn't just a bunch of uh politicos and DC activists on a podcast raising concerns about this. This is a federal court judge, one of the key judges who've been handling dozens of these cases. Yeah. And I think when you look at some of the sentences that have come down as well, I mean, Jacob Chansley, who is known as the QAnon shaman, I don't believe he was involved in anything violent. He received a 41 month sentence. Um, And when you compare that to sentences for violent criminals in places like Portland, Minneapolis, etc., when they're released on these insanely low low bonds, sometimes they don't get any jail time at all. It really does seem like there's a double standard involved. Um, but the other side of this is which people haven't been charged. Um, there's been some reporting from Revolver News and the Daily Mail about this guy named Ray Epps and how he was one of the people caught on video urging people to go into the Capitol and and telling people that this was going to be their next move, even the night before January 6th, and yet he is living the life on his ranch in, I believe, Montana. And this has led people to speculate that he was perhaps working on behalf of the federal government. And there's been other evidence to suggest that federal agents were involved in this. And when we see um, the case in Michigan, where most of the people who were plotting this kidnapping um, ring against uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer turned out to be federal agents as well. I think that um, lends credence to the idea that some of this could have been potentially manufactured. Um, What do you think, Tom? Well, you know, I think we saw what happened on January 6th. I don't don't think it's a secret. There was not enough security and there were agitators who took advantage of it. And it led to a riot because of poor policing by the Pelosi Congress. They didn't provide security given the crowd. And uh, on top of that, you know, it's not so much in my view that there were informants or people associated with the FBI or other informants that uh, incited the crowd. And, you know, this issue about Ray Epps is, you know, it's very interesting to see. What, you know, what I see is that they knew that there was no conspiracy because of these informants. Not so much that they incited the violence, which is still an open question in some respects with Ray Epps, but I don't know, you know. Just presuming what we know. There was a riot. Many of them were Trump supporters. They were violent. Some of them. Was there evidence that 
uh, there was a grand conspiracy out of the White House and that these Proud Boys and others were involved in this conspiracy to overthrow the government? No, there isn't. And the fact that there were informants around tell us they were lying to us from the get-go about 1-6. And this is the headline from the New York Times. Among those who marched into the Capitol on January 6th, an FBI informant, a member of the far-right Proud Boys, texted his FBI handler during the assault, but maintained the group had no plan in advance to enter the Capitol and disrupt the electoral certification. Well, doesn't that blow out of the water? The whole January 6th narrative? Indeed, they've kind of, you know, I don't want to go over on this, but they've even backed away from that because now the, the new standard is, oh, well, Trump incited the violence. Well, maybe he didn't incite the violence, but once the violence happened, he didn't speak out against it strongly enough in the way we liked. So which is it? Yeah, you're exactly right. There's been this contradictory message of, you know, this was a, a pre-planned assault insurrection versus Trump incited this with his words on the ellipse that day. Um, you alluded to the fact that there is perhaps documentation that the police didn't respond the way that they should have on that day or that Congress didn't prepare for what they knew was going to be a large mass of people um, descending on the Capitol that day. I understand that Judicial Watch has been trying to sue for some of these documents um, detailing the uh, law enforcement response that day. What else have you learned um, since the the last time that we spoke, which I believe was on WMAL, um, about that specific angle to January 6th? Well, I always learn things every day. I try to think what I learned since the radio show. Uh, but, you know, look, to be j- just generally speaking, the feds knew there was going to be a big crowd at the Capitol, and it's pretty clear they didn't have the security there that was going to be necessary to control the crowd. They knew most of the crowd was going to go to the Capitol. The left media would have you believe that it was a surprise that everyone marched to the Capitol. They all knew people were going to go to the Capitol. And that was that was the day before. I, I think some of the materials show the day before that's what happened. You know, what I, I think is interesting also is there's been testimony and reporting that Nancy Pelosi didn't want the National Guard at the Capitol. You know, I, you know, I remember the left criticized those of us who said that the president should invoke the Insurrection Act during the summer. I think it was summer 2020, right, where the riots were taking place. And, you know, that caused them to have to run into the uh, to the secret compound in the basement of the White House to protect the president. You know, but the feedback that they had gotten from House leaders and Pelosi, according to reports, is they didn't want the military near the Capitol. They didn't like the appearance of that. Because the thinking was the left was going to be inciting violence and fighting these so-called far-right groups, and they didn't want the military there. Uh, and, you know, that decision, the failure to invoke the Insurrection Act and provide necessary security for the capital city, in my view, was a big mistake because not only would it have protected the White House, but protected the Capitol at that time because we would have had people around to, to provide better security, control the crowd, protect uh, the people in the Capitol, and also protect the people who are exercising their First Amendment rights appropriately. Uh, Hey, Tom, there was an article recently in the New York Times that essentially corroborated what you just said. Uh, They talked to officers who were on the Capitol Police and they said, uh, we knew that something was happening. You know, we knew that there was chatter on Twitter and so on, that that people were speaking much more violently than they normally would. 
Uh, but, but, you know, like you said, that the Capitol Police higher-ups, they just weren't prepared. Uh, they didn't take it seriously. Um, the, the Insurrection Act was not invoked. The National Guard was not called in. All of that was kind of hamstrung. And also, the, the Capitol Police does not gather its own intelligence. It relies on the intelligence agencies. The intelligence agencies didn't see this coming either. So it was it was a failure of government to really uh, predict what was going to happen here and respond to it. And yet, in response, government seems to have just seized more power, right? It became an excuse for turning D.C. into even more of a security state to, to, to beef up even further. Is that how you read it? Is it kind of like a situation that happened after 9-11 where government failed, so therefore government gets to gain again? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you say government, you know, I think it's a more political than, quote, government. I think it's the House of the Nancy Pelosi deciding uh, to use January 6th as a pretext uh, to target her political enemies and using security as one of those vehicles. And when it comes to riots, it's, you know, you know it's not fail. It's, it's decisions by government. Riots are not like the rain. They just don't happen. I'm sure there's always an exception, right? But riots virtually always happen, always virtually happen because of decision-making by uh, police officials to let them happen. It's, it's security decision-making that riots, that allow riots to happen. It's, it's, it's failures of decision-making by government officials, and in this case, uh, of the leaders of the Capitol, the, the leaders of Congress. I mean, this was a decision not to have the security there, despite knowing there'd be big crowds, because they didn't like the appearances of having a bunch of National Guard people standing around. Hey, Tom, one more question for you about the uh, prisoners themselves, getting back to them for a second here. Uh, Just to play devil's advocate, somebody might say, look, I saw what happened on TV. I was horrified by that riot. I, I, you know, knew people perhaps who were inside the Capitol building. I didn't know for hours whether or not they were okay. Uh, Why should somebody like that, why should we care uh, what happens to uh, these rioters who are in jail right now? Why should we turn this into a... a cause of criminal justice? Well, I think the question should be, is justice being fairly administered? Uh, and are they being treated the way others who don't share their politics would have been treated? I, I, I don't know where you all were for the Kavanaugh hearings, Amber. I don't know if you were in town. I was. You know, yeah. I was there. I saw the violence. I mean, I was, I was sitting in the, in, in the, uh, in the hearing room and every few minutes, someone would start screaming and yelling in the back. They'd resist arrest, which is violent, uh, because it places everyone around them at risk and the police at risk. And they were taken out. They were trying, and it was very disruptive. I mean, the TV didn't, you know, kind of minimize or mitigated the disruption that occurred while you were present. And then during the second hearing where you had uh, the defamation of Kavanaugh take place with the... Uh, you know, with his accuser, it was a nightmare. There was there was zero control in the building there, and uh, I was very nervous. Uh, and uh, certainly, senators were being confronted directly by protesters. So, I mean, you know, this lawlessness often happens on the Hill in terms of protests. Usually, it's from the left, and we saw with the Kavanaugh hearings that people were being let out and then come back in after they got the equivalent of a ticket. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to say, 
to, to uh, prosecute folks for hitting police officers or acting violently or destroying property. Uh, it's another thing to uh, uh, treat people who walk through evidently open doors uh, with not much other evidence of criminal conduct and, and be uh, slapped with federal charges for, quote, parading. I mean, that's extraordinary. Yeah, you can go back to the 2016 inauguration, too. I was on the ground with some of the protests just recording, and I saw some really violent acts taking place um, just in front of me. One of the protesters had pulled a stop sign out of the ground and was swinging it wildly at a police officer, and, and yet there were so few charges brought um, on the protesters that day because generally in this city, the uh, federal uh, authorities tend to err on the side of allowing political protest to continue um, without that kind of legal crackdown. So I think you're right, Tom, that, that this is something that this double standard has been brewing for a long time. I want to ask you about the response of big tech companies, because not only has this been used as a way, um, or not only has law enforcement used this as a way to try to um, sort of silence the opposition, and when I say law enforcement, I mean the political forces within the government that have um, legal authority, but they've also worked in concert with tech companies. This was an excuse to kick former President Donald Trump off of Twitter and Facebook when he said that he wasn't going to attend the inauguration. That was somehow proof that he was planning another violent event by you know, telling his supporters, hey guys, I'm not going to be there so you can do whatever you want. They had read this intent into his words that wasn't there. Um, since then, can you just talk a little bit about how much censorship has taken place and, and how that ties back to, to what happened on January 6th and the way that the left is using this to um, shut down Trump supporters? Well, it was already taking place, as you know, before January 6th and, you know, accelerated after January 6th. And remember, the, the, the whole censorship move came as a result of Trump's victory in the 2016 election. They uh, pretended that the Russians had infiltrated Facebook and changed the results of the election because they allegedly spent $100,000 on ads. So that was used as an excuse to, quote, police misinformation. And it metastasized uh, to uh, include uh, critics of Joe Biden, namely the Hunter Biden scandal, Critics of the election law changes. I had material taken down. I'm a, I'm a national expert on on elections. And, uh, you know, my kind of tried and true commentary on this uh, resulted in some of my tweets being labeled or taken down. Google decided, uh, and uh, which r runs YouTube, they decided that if you have a video where you say that... Um, uh, voter fraud can materially impact an election, uh, you'll you'll have your video taken down. And, you know, your factual basis for it aside. Uh, so, uh, and, and since then, uh, they've, uh, one six has just kind of been another pretext to accelerate uh, the censorship. There's a story in the New York Times this week uh, highlighting how podcasts had, quote, misinformation about the election, which is criticism of the way the election was handled because they didn't trust that the elections would be fairly administered as a result of rule changes. And so the push for the New York Times is to censor these podcasts. And the podcasts are the most popular podcasts in the country, uh, certainly on the conservative side of things. 
who also happen to be competitors. So it's gotten worse. I mean, I just got I just got thrown off of TikTok TikTok for I don't know what. And it's not like I'm you know offending anyone with weird dance videos. I just I'm just posting straightforward commentary that I've placed on other platforms. Yeah, it's pretty convenient too that they are trying to silence people talking about. Um, some of the rule changes in terms of elections as the left is now using January 6th as an excuse to federalize elections. But I just have one more question for you, and then we'll wrap up. Um, The media is set to cover tomorrow breathlessly. Of course, CNN is doing some special all-day event from the the grounds of the Capitol, and I'm sure other news outlets have things planned as well. Um, In terms of how the American people view this, do you think this type of overreaction to it is just going to cause people to sort of recoil and say, all right, we don't care about this so much anymore? Or is there something effective about them um, replaying these videos of people rushing up the Capitol steps? Well, they're speaking to half the country. They're not speaking to the whole country. Uh, Because what they're trying to suggest, as you pointed out with, you know, your prior commentary, Amber, is that Anyone who objects to anything that the left wants is an insurrectionist. The New York Times this week again, Jan- every day is January 6th. I mean, how else would you interpret that other than to say that if you oppose anything Biden wants to do, any changes to election law, or you want to solidify election law in a way that preserves people's right to vote, you're an insurrectionist. I mean, this is this is the propaganda. This is I calling this the January sixth propaganda week, and uh, you know, and to close out, I'd like to have more media ask questions about the police shooting of Ashley Babbitt. I mean, Judicial Watch, not the Rump Committee that Pelosi has uh, set up, uncovered that there was no good reason for the shooting. She was the police saw uh, all saw that she didn't have any weapon. Uh, Lieutenant Byrd shot, shot, practically speaking, blindly into a crowd with other police behind uh, Babbitt. It was reckless and dangerous and, and a, a terrible shoot, as you know, the police uh, uh, experts and veterans say. Yet there's been no accountability uh, for him, and there's been a complete cover-up by Pelosi. So just people should know, January 6th, people have a right to demand how it happened. Uh, but they're not going to get the truth from the Pelosi Rump Committee because the Pelosi House right now is refusing to turn over any documents about what happened. So um, uh, the country is going to be split on this. Uh, many Americans think the election was mishandled and don't have confidence in it. And the way the Biden gang is handling, handling things this week uh, isn't going to reassure any of them. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.